Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Brett Gustafson, Professor of Sociocultural Anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis. We will be talking about his book, Bolivia in the Age of Gas, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Thank you very much, Professor Gustafson, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, So at the New Books Network, we like to start by learning about our guests' backgrounds. So could you tell us how you came to anthropology to the anthropology of Bolivia, and to the anthropology of gas in Bolivia? Well, that's a a long story, so I'll try to make it brief. Um, (laughs) I grew up um, during the age of uh, the 1980s uh, when Ronald Reagan was president, and it uh, really intensified my interest in Central America. Um, I don't know, it depends on the age of your listeners. They'll remember Reagan and Central America, but... At any rate, I, I uh, hoped to study Latin America in college, and I went to Tulane University, which has one of the best Latin American studies programs in the country, and uh, ended up uh, having great advisors, uh, one of whom was uh, Judy Maxwell, who's still on faculty at Tulane in the Department of Anthropology, who uh, turned me on to the politics of indigenous languages. And uh, with Judy, I I spent some time in Guatemala studying Cachiquel, a Maya language, Guatemala. And um, another great uh, advisor, Linda Curcio, was a historian who also got me interested in in Bolivia. And so I was uh, ended up writing about Guatemala as an undergrad. But uh, after Tulane, I I managed to get a a Fulbright to go to Bolivia and uh, have stayed in Bolivia ever since. when I was in Bolivia uh, in the early years, I ended up working there for uh, almost three years with the Guarani Indigenous Organization. At that time, they were mobilizing around land and bilingual education, and I started studying Guarani and uh, working with the organization on, on, on indigenous language education. And that turned into my first project, which is about uh, neoliberal school reform and, and multiculturalism and, and indigenous bilingual education. And as I was working on that and and continuing to uh, return to uh, Bolivia, uh, we all watched as the gas industry started expanding uh, across their land and territory and really sort of upended their organizing process and really reoriented the politics of of pretty much the entire country, as I write, uh, around gas. And... um, 
so it sort of emerged organically from my work with the Guarani that I turned to uh, thinking about gas. Uh, back here on campus, uh, a lot of uh, my students were organizing around climate, and I really sort of dove in uh, to the question of fossil fuels. Uh, and uh, so the, the combination of what was happening here in the United States and well, globally uh, and what was happening in the Guarani region kind of uh, led to my uh, focus on gas. Uh, so it's, it's a weird combination. I, I, I consider myself uh, someone who does indigenous languages and sort of uh, education, but now I've become this fossil fuel person. Uh, it makes sense to me, as I say, uh, but it all came out of uh, my long-term uh, work with the Guarani. Yeah, that's wonderful to know. And I think in the book, you also show us how, you know, these the seemingly disparate um, facets of life in Bolivia are interconnected. Um, yes. Yeah. And, you know, pivoting to the book, um, you describe it as a historical ethnography of Bolivia as a geisha state. So what are the merits of thinking with a geisha state? And what does geishasness offer for our understanding of statecraft, both in Bolivia and beyond? Yeah, that's a, gr- a great question. Um, I, I borrow that phrase uh, from the Spanish phrase that I often heard. Uh, they, they, they would refer to Bolivia during that time as a estado gasificado, gasified state. And I use gaseous uh, as uh, it's probably a little awkward. Either form is awkward. Um, uh, but uh, gasified, uh, the gasified or gaseous state simply uh, refers to a way of, of, of drawing one's attention to uh, what had become central to politics. As I say, the state reoriented itself to become an apparatus to export gas. In legal terms, it transformed the legal regimes in order to facilitate that, uh, prioritized uh, different uh, uh, parts in area, geographic regions of the state around the politics of gas. And... Um, without exaggeration, began to impact everything. Um, And I I try to bring it under control in the book with those three themes, time, space, and excess. Um, And so as far as its relevance elsewhere, scholars who study fossil fuel politics will see similarities uh, uh, because of of the way the industry uh, necessarily works. So, for example, the prioritization of the contractual temporality of, of the industry um, the way that political narratives get recentered around the so the supposed importance of, of gas, um, the intensification of regional fragmentation, regional conflicts, um, and, the, and the, the different forms of excess that I discuss. Uh, these are things that will be familiar to scholars of, of fossil fuel economies. Uh, so um, as far as a, a broader understanding um, at least in Bolivia, it it seemed like a good alternative to what we used to do. Uh, We used to say things like the neoliberal state, and then a lot of people assume that they know what it is. Mm -hmm. Or now we see all the post-neoliberal state or the extractivist state. But I I found that those framings weren't really helpful uh, and that we really, I really wanted to focus in on, on, uh, the fuel itself, so to speak. Um, 
And as I was uh, thinking about this question, uh, in some ways we can also see this unfolding in, in the United States uh, because of climate activism and a really reactionary effort on the part of the fossil fuel industry to defend itself. Uh, we see some of these patterns uh, happening uh, here as well um, with battles over pipelines. State legislatures are transforming laws to restrict uh, protest and, and so forth. So in some ways, we also are in a, a gaseous state of sorts. Absolutely. Um, yeah, speaking of the United States uh, and the gaseousness of the U.S., uh, one of the most striking theoretical threads in the book for me was that of empire. Um, so... How did the travels of oil and gas through time and space help you track the workings of empire? Yeah. Um, well, Latin Americans and Latin Americanists who know anything about history uh, will, you know, you have to recognize the, the long history of coloniality and imperialism that have shaped the region. Uh, from the Spaniards to the French, the Dutch, the British, and, and the U.S. Americans. Um, and many material things have motivated that history of plunder, uh, silver, tin. Uh, but at least in the 20th century, uh, it's, and especially in relationship to the United States, it has largely had to do with uh, oil and gas. Um, so... Uh, in the original title of the book, you know, these things change when you write a book. The original title of the book, it's still in the folders of my computer. But it's not called that anymore. It was Energy and Empire. And uh, that is a rather arrogant sounding title. But I, I initially hoped to, uh, um, to write a, a, a more sort of um, direct critique of U.S. imperialism around fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um but as I wrote and thought about it, and uh, again, I borrowed here a little bit from a, a scholar who's unfortunately is uh, no longer with us, Fernando Coronil, um, who has written about uh, empire and the imperial urge, but uh, maintaining uh, Bolivia, or in his case, Venezuela, as, as a center of, of that. So um, the theme of empire stayed central to the book, but I, I, I took that title out and it's recentered on Bolivia. But um, you can't talk about oil or gas in Bolivia without the word imperialismo. Um, it's one of Evo Morales's favorite words because it's central to the Bolivian history. And, and in, in fact, the more I learned about uh, uh, the, the role of the United States in the early 20th century, uh, the more I was convinced that they're right. Uh, it is about imperialism. Um, the paradoxical thing, as I argue, is that while Bolivia was able to free itself from the grip of the United States, has been uh, to some extent, uh, this embrace of, 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 of gas as a, a kind of a liberatory project has been has meant that it, it hasn't been able to free itself from dependence on fossil capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's the sort of underlying paradox of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned that you initially intended to write a more direct critique, and I was wondering what led you to diverge from that? Well, 
they're, 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 you, you have a balancing act. Um, if you just write about Bolivia as if it's isolated from global processes and connections, you're writing fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you write about Bolivia as just being a subject of U.S. imperialism without its own history, uh, circumscribed autonomy and sovereignty to at least some extent, that's also a kind of a fiction. Um, there's also the question of me being a, a white U.S. American uh, uh, critiquing Bolivia's embrace of, of fossil fuels. Well, that's a problematic stance as well. So I hope to uh, turn the lens on ourselves, and I say ourselves as a U.S. North American, um, uh, um, without centering uh, the story around uh, the U.S. As, as determining everything, because the U.S. does not. Uh, the election of Evo Morales was a great example of that. It was a huge defeat for the United States. Um, so that's why I, I kind of dropped the energy and empire. Um, and a colleague asked me once, he said, oh, you're writing a book like Braudel, you know, this sort of magnificent opus. And I thought, no, I could never claim to be anything like that. So I'm going to get rid of that pretension and just write about what I know, which is Bolivia. So, and as a matter of fact, for, you know, authors to think about, you should also take advice from your editors. So I can Mm. thank Isela Fosado at Duke, who at the end of the day said to me, you know what, I just like Bolivia in the age of gas. So we went with that. <laughs> that's that's wonderful to know. Um, and speaking of Brodel, uh, my next question is about the long durée approach in your work. Um, so, for instance, in your chapter on the Chaco War, you present dying in defense of oil as an affective register that's pertinent through the past and the present. So how did these affective registers around life and death enhance your long durée approach to militarization and racial capitalism? Yeah, they're, um, I don't know how much of a confessional these podcasts are, <laughs> but... Um, a lot, uh, <laughs> to a large extent. <laughs> so um, there I was grappling with a lot of things. The, the first one about the Chaco War is you can't, talk about gas in Bolivia or oil without talking about the Chaco War. Um, you have to have something to say about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I say, you know, Bolivians tend to say that the war was about oil and our soldiers died in defense of the oil. And the war was provoked by a clash between Standard Oil and Royal Dutch Shell on the Paraguayan side. And um, it creates an entire narrative around this valiant sacrifice in defense of oil. And uh, that's something that I certainly had subscribed to myself as in my younger years as a, a student of Latin America. Um, and before I started thinking more deeply about climate and oil and fossil capitalism, I certainly, like many uh Many who sympathize with liberatory movements, I thought, yes, they should fight for the oil and and, and prevent it from being uh, plundered by the United States. Um, of course, things are a little more complicated than that. Um, but the confessional part of this is that I w- was also writing, uh, we're all living in this time of uh, forever wars. And uh, in my teaching, in my classes, I teach a course on, on global energy 
politics and I have several lectures on the forever wars in the Middle East and the long history of uh, interventionism for oil in the Middle East from Iraq to Iran to uh, uh, the creation of Israel and all those conjoined politics that have everything to do with oil, despite the fact that we deny that continuously. We deny that it's about oil. It's not about oil. It's about blah, 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 blah. Anything but oil, when in fact, it's about oil. So I tell my students, you know, in, in, in Bolivia, they, they, they sort of say, we, yeah, we're proud that our, our grandfathers died in defense of the oil. But, you know, here you have all of these uh, U.S. soldiers over there dying for oil, but we're not allowed to say that. Uh, and not just U.S. soldiers, all of these people that our government is killing. We're killing for oil, but we're not allowed to say that. It's because they're terrorists mm-hmm. or something else. So all of that sort of congealed in my brain and generated that chapter on the Chaco War, which was a, a, perhaps a feeble attempt, but an attempt nonetheless to to uh, uh, say something about why we shouldn't be killing and dying for oil. Um, and I don't know if that was achieved or not. Uh, the readers can d- decide for themselves, but um, that those are the connections I was trying to make. And again, as I say, the, the paradox is that you know, while well, the imperialist urge sends soldiers to die for oil, but tells them that it's about something else, the revolutionary, you know, the revolutionary fighter uh, um, embraces the need to die for oil, uh, but it, it's kind of a trap, as I say. Um, you know, is there another way to think about uh, political liberation? Uh, that doesn't fall into that trap. Uh, I think once you're in the terrain of oil and gas politics, it's hard to escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this this aim absolutely comes through as a reader, <laughs> if I may say so. That makes my day. So. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about um, the spatial aspect of your book. So, um, in Bolivia and the Age of Gas, um, you focus on southeastern Bolivia, among other parts of the country and among different circulations, and you follow the labor around oil to arrive at um, what I think are very provocative conclusions on racialization, politics, and gender. So... Could you take our listeners through the racialized, politicized, and gendered labor of gas in southeastern Bolivia? Um, yeah, that's another tough one. Um, <laughs> I'm here to ask the an, tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, in a nutshell, um, it's, uh, well, spatialized, of course, like all oil and gas industries generally operate in enclaves wherever the gas and oil is. And those of us who consume it elsewhere rarely see the labor that goes into it uh, or think about what, what that's like. But uh, in Bolivia, where most of the gas is in southeastern Bolivia, most of the labor at the, the, the top of the pyramid uh, from the managers to the engineers and so forth uh, are lighter skinned and men uh, who have historically had access to education. Many of them used to have their fathers who worked for the National Oil Company before, and they now work for 
a national oil company or one of the private oil companies. Um, and so largely masculinist labor force uh, that is maintained throughout. And I talk about one young woman who works for it as an exception uh, to that, uh, but uh, only an, an exception. And um, as you go down the pyramid, uh, of course, to the, the manual labor that's needed to clear the sites or uh, clear the forest so the seismic crews can get in uh, or do the construction work. Um, there you'll see the uh, more indigenous uh, Bolivians um, who uh, don't didn't have access to education and don't have access to those very few uh, uh, good jobs at the top. Um, and as I say, it's, it's not a huge labor force at the end of the day. We're talking about uh, a few thousand people. Uh, and that's another material reality of oil and gas. It's very capital intensive, but it's not labor intensive once you're, once you're actually extracting. So at any rate, um, I had hoped to do more on labor. And uh, for various reasons that have to do with the complexity of teaching and, you know, once you're teaching and you don't have the time and flexibility to do the kind of field work that you might want to do. But um, what I do try to highlight in the book is that uh, the, the wealth flows outward um, to the cities or the state. And what gets created locally is a very intensified competition for the scraps, so to speak, the, the leftover bits of labor that uh, there aren't really there. Uh, and again, scholars of fossil fuel sites elsewhere will recognize this. Um, oil and gas activity always draws people to it who are hoping to get a job, but there are no jobs. So in, in the wake, you intensify local competition for, for, for little scraps of, of labor. And um, the other side of that or another side of that is of course uh sex work sex violence and sex trafficking which i was only able to point to in the book uh some emerging research on it again that was an, an issue that i hoped to write more about and, and and research more about but for various reasons i was was unable to do it mm -hmm. but again this is exactly similar to what we see in in the united states and in canada and particularly so in, in regions of indigenous uh, uh, indigenous uh, territories, is that the, the tight connection between the, the masculine labor, the so-called man camps that are built to build pipelines or, or do and drilling sites um, between uh, man camps and uh, sexual violence, uh, particularly against indigenous women. And that is, uh, again, something that, we see in the history all the way back to the age of standard oil in the 1920s and it continues today. And that of course is a f can be a form of work for some, but it's also a form of uh, violence uh, for many. And again, another paradox, you have a, a so-called socialist government that has a lot of progressive or at least rhetoric and discourse but when you rely on an industry that has this built into its labor structure and its spatial uh, spatial manifestation in specifically gendered forms, you are you're doing something that's decidedly anti-revolutionary and, and violent. Mm -hmm. 
That's especially when it comes to race and gender. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to continue um, speaking about violence a little bit more. Um, so in the book, through the marker of the lash and through your focus on Guarani lives, we also see the age of gas as one in which colonized forms of violence intensify, which is maybe, you know, one of these paradoxes you've been laying out so wonderfully throughout our conversation. Um, So can you speak a bit more about what the age of gas can tell us about the entanglements of colonialism, indigeneity, and violence? So the lash... um... Another difficult chapter to grapple with uh, because uh, for those who haven't read the book, the lash refers to the whip of the uh, hacienda patron or the the landowner uh, who historically used the whip to discipline uh, workers on on haciendas or what we call in English uh, uh, plantations or farms as something that's very real in the experience of the Guarani. And the event that I narrate, uh, one of the Guarani lawyers was seized and whipped by uh, white landowners who were trying to prevent uh, the Guarani from uh, helping the state land surveyors mark out a territory that they had a claim on. So... I get chills when I remember it because it was a very intense and violent moment that re-traumatized many of my Guarani friends and colleagues who were there when it happened and were victims of this violence. But um, to answer your question about how this connects to gas, what we saw is that when Evo Morales was elected and the uh, support of indigenous peoples for the state shifted radically. 500 years, the state has been opposed to you as an indigenous person. And for once, the state is on your side. That's an amazing moment Mm -hmm. to think about. Um, A paradox will be coming shortly. But at any rate, during that moment that I talk about, It was quite remarkable. And the state was not only on the side of the Guarani, the state functionaries, and I I talk about one uh, uh, colleague there, uh, I can call him a colleague now, we've had so many conversations, Alejandro Almaraz. His father was Sergio Almaraz, who was the the socialist intellectual, who who was the the thinker behind the, the nationalization of oil back in the 60s. And so his son is now the uh, uh, functionary of Evo Morales' government with a really revolutionary uh, position. The the possibility that they could actually return land to the Guarani that had been stolen from them historically. And it was a really crazy uh, reconfiguration. And, And, you know, he jokes about it now, Alejandro. Because he, he went in with, with police eventually and armed soldiers who had, you know, his father had been persecuted uh, by the military. So it was a quite remarkable moment. And what we saw was that in, in the face of this, this new indigenous president and the social movements being backed by the government, 
really challenged the lighter-skinned power holders uh, who had traditionally basically been the law of the land. And um, they quite literally were arming themselves. They were vocalizing the racism that they always had, but much more publicly and, and openly, um, and organizing much like these proto-paramilitary organizations. Uh, I want to keep drawing it back to the United States, but in, in some ways there are some similarities there. Or with Colombia, you know, people are familiar with Colombia, um, and talking about taking the law in their own hands. Uh, and the Guarani were the targets of that. Um, and so that's how the contests over land, which both directly and indirectly had to do with gas, uh, intensified these colonial, uh, these colonial uh, forms of violence because of the attempt to decolonize the situation slightly, ever so slightly. And uh, fortunately, nobody lost their life in that particular set of events. Um, as I say, that doesn't diminish the intensity of the, the violence and, and trauma that it caused. And it was only because at the end of the day, uh, the government was uh, able to sort of buy the support of some of the smaller landholders and did not really push hard for real indigenous autonomy, uh, real indigenous territorial recuperation. It was only because of that that we did not see more of a violent backlash. And so for better and for worse, uh, we didn't see the violence, but that's only because uh, the more revolutionary urge of figures like Almaraz were marginalized in the government and the government began to uh, take a more, uh, a, a more, a less uh, assertive stance on land. And in fact, Alejandro Almaraz eventually was forced out of the government because he had more of a revolutionary vision that uh, the, in the later years, the mass government of Morales uh, sort of backed away from. So in many ways, uh, decolonization has not happened yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and relatedly, how the political deaths and labor enable the circulations of excess in a gaseous state, which is you know, another pillar of your book. Um, and in other words, what kinds of political work do death and labor do for the excesses of gas? Yes, uh, yet another hard question. I fear <laughs> I'm going to fail this exam. Um, You're doing great. <laughs> I won't, <laughs> I've only, um, I, you know, I only began to grapple with this in the book, and that's something you shouldn't say as an author. You should say you've resolved it. But um, I try to be humble uh, and say I'm only beginning to grapple with this in, in the book. And that chapter in particular uh, that I called Rec Requiem for the Dead um, was also, you know, in, in my confessional moment here, it was also kind of, a, a, not to be sentimental about it, uh, that was a, a sincere effort to, to at least point to the fact that these are uh, people who were killed um, and then quickly forgotten. Uh, 
And I was trying to figure out what that was about. And that emerged out of a conversation I was having with another figure. I won't say his name here, but another figure who had been close to the Morales government, but also was marginalized when uh, they sort of stepped back from their real revolutionary visions. And he was remembering these young people who had been killed by the state back in the 70s and 80s, uh, young revolutionaries. And uh, we were talking about the events that I, I narrate in there, the, the killings of the, the, the peasants in Pando up in northern Bolivia that were part of the clash between the Morales government and regional power holders, very similar to the Guarani case. Um, so I was trying to ask the question that you just posed. I mean, what is the meaning of this? Um, what kind of work does death do? And I was trying not to fall into the trap of saying what a lot of people are saying these days is necropolitics this and necropolitics that, not to dismiss the value of Membe's concept, which I, I quite appreciate, uh, but I, I, that's not quite what this is about. Um, it's not simply about destruction of the enemy. It's more about the productive work that dead bodies are able to do both for reactionary forces and for so-called revolutionary states. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before in the Chaco Wars that you do like to think that you might, might uh, find something worth fighting and dying for someday. Um, but what would that be? And is this it? Uh, that's certainly how revolutionary violence is talked about, but whether that's what was actually happening is a question that I try to leave open for the reader to answer for themselves. Um, and that's some authors, I don't know if any other authors do that. I like to do that um, because I'd rather not tell the reader what they should think. I'd rather that the reader think through it for themselves. So I will stay tuned to see what uh, people take from that chapter. And, and um, well, uh, as I say later, you know, that chapter for, for one of the reviewers, uh, actually a couple of the reviewers thought that chapter didn't fit. Um, and uh, maybe we can talk about that some more. Uh, in a moment. Of course. Uh, in fact, that was my next question uh, in the spirit of confessionality. <laughs> <laughs> of our conversation. Um, so in parts of the book, like in the text of the book itself, you tell us how you grappled with the reviews throughout the publication process. And, you know, frankly, this is not something that I personally see very often uh, in the actual text of a book. And I found it really, um, really interesting and rather unorthodox in a very refreshing way. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about this transparency you adopted in your writing and how did engaging with the reviews within the text itself enrich your book? Right. Well, um, first of all, I should say I, I really appreciate, uh, again, my editor, Gisela Fosalo and, and the reviewers, um, for uh, you know, 
for Hisello for finding great reviewers and for the reviewers for doing great reviews that were helpful. Um, you know, so for writers, the, the best review is uh, one that's gently critical, supportive, but gently critical, but uh, demonstrating real engagement with the ideas. Um, the worst review is someone who just says, oh, this is great. Uh, I mean, even worse than that is they say, oh, this is awful. But at any rate, <laughs> I, I was lucky to have them engage. And specifically on the, the, the question of excess, um, uh, I think one of the reviewers suggested that I engage a French philosopher, uh, Georges Bataille. And um, people who know me will know that I'm not the philosopher type of writer or philosopher type of anthropologist, but I appreciated that suggestion. And as a future writer yourself, uh, a book writer, um, this might happen to you. The reviewers suggest you read. And I spent three weeks reading all I could from Bataille on excess. And as I, I think I, I, I give my little tribute to Bataille in a footnote, and you can dig, dig that one out <laughs> of the back of the book. But at the end of the day, in that case, I said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to stick with Sabaleta. Mm-hmm. Um, even though now that I have read Bataille uh, sufficiently, I say, well, yes, you could. I, I see the connection. But at any rate, in the case of that chapter being a bit of an excess, uh, well, they didn't use that phrase. They they the reviewer didn't understand how, what that had to do with gas. And that's a fair question. And I, and I thought to myself, well, if that's not clear, then I'm not making it clear. Mm-hmm. And a reader might think the same thing. So rather than make them figure it out for themselves, I'll just tell them. Uh, in this case, I, I will say, look, in, in case you're wondering what this has to do with gas, one of the reviewers did too, and this is what it has to do with gas. And it goes back to that question we were just talking about. How do these political, how does this political violence fit into the struggle over hegemony? Um, and what are the meanings that are given to those dead bodies? Uh, you know, in my, in my mind, that has everything to do with gas, but maybe that's just because I've I have a gaseous head as well as a gaseous state. So, but at any rate, I, I do think uh, it's related. And I think, I, I don't know how unorthodox that is. I, I feel like I've seen others sort of address reviewers, maybe in articles more than in, in the book, but I, I think it, uh, it, it, I think it helps. Uh, I think it's, uh, it, it would help the reader to understand, oh, well, it, this person didn't just come up with this all by themselves. This came out of a dialogue, uh, as all things do. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to pivot a little bit to your methodology. Uh, you explicitly state that Bolivia in the age of gas is not an ethnography of the gas industry per se but rather as a historical ethnography that takes diagnostic events as an anchor. So can you speak to this methodological choice and what inspired it? Mm -hmm. Yes. um, So, you know, here again, I had considered, uh, you know, the evolution of the book. Um, uh, Initially, I was going to do a more infrastructure-centered study of the gas pipeline that links Bolivia and Brazil. And I said before the project was being called Energy and Empire, 
before that, I was calling it the Bolivia Brazil project. And I even traveled to Brazil along the pipeline route to try to think about what would an ethnography of this pipeline look like. And, and that's actually an interesting angle that a lot of scholars are taking these days, tracing infrastructure. Uh, again, thanks to Hisela Fosala, who I would run into every year at the AAAs, and she'd say, how is the book going? I said, well, I, you know, I went to Brazil and this, that, and the other. And one year, she finally just said, just write about Bolivia. And I said, you know what? Thank you for liberating me. So, um, so I, I, I scratched the, the Brazil angle. Um, I mean, Brazil's plenty present in the text, but scratched the pipeline angle and instead uh, recentered it on the region and the people who were impacted, my Guarani friends and interlocutors. And um, as to why it didn't become an ethnography of the gas industry, uh, there's, there's a lot of that out there as well. Um, and increasingly, it, 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 it becomes obvious that the, the, the gas and oil industries are rather standardized globally. Mm-hmm. And it's not entirely clear that the, the interesting things are necessarily about the industry itself, say interviewing engineers and managers, an oil engineer, you know, they're from Houston or they're from uh, Algeria. They all speak in the same ways. And I, I think for some scholars who are interested in that, that kind of thing, that that's, that's interesting, but that wasn't really what was interesting to me. Um, and I was more interested in, in thinking about how gas impacted other political processes that were unfolding, like the struggle over land and, and local lives and uh, the, the politics of social movements and the state and so forth. And that concept, diagnostic events, that comes from Sally Falkmore, who was one of my advisors uh, years ago in grad school and uh, one of the best professors I ever had. Uh, she's a legal anthropologist, of, uh, a scholar of, of Africa, um, Still with us, I sent her a copy of the book and said, "Look, Sally, diagnostic <laughs> events uh, rise again." Um, and that, you know that may sound, you know, in this day and age, uh, the younger generations, you know, if something wasn't published last year, it's it's out of date. <laughs> and I said, but you know what? Well, I'm sorry. You know that this approach is still relevant and useful because what Sally argues is that to think about a processual ethnography and you think about politics as process, you could take a diagnostic event that's situated in a history that may be long durée or maybe of shorter duration uh, and try to think about what's under transformation and what's not changing. Um, and it should be clear that, that that kind of thinking is is throughout the book, is asking questions about what's happening here What's changing? Are power relations shifting or are they reasserting themselves? Um, uh, And it it also helps the narrative as well, because these are real things that are happening to real people and real time. Uh, So I, I, I like the idea. I hope the reader does too. So I like it too. (laughs) Thank you. It's good to hear. That's it. That's right. I have uh, that's one vote. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> well, thank you for um, taking us through your thinking through the methodology. 
And I would imagine it would be very helpful for our readers who might be writing a book someday. Um, anyway, uh, so I'm moving on to my last couple of questions, actually. It's not just one, but two. Um, so as you also address in your postscript entitled Bolivia 2020, the gaseous state of Bolivia has been a rapidly shifting political terrain, especially in the last few years. Um, so what were some challenges of writing a book in such a dynamic context? And in light of the recent developments in Bolivian politics, what would a postscript entitled Bolivia 2021 look like? Right. So, yeah, here again, if it didn't happen last year, it's already ancient history. Um, well, we're all uh, stuck in this situation in, in, in anthropology, at least, where we're, we're sort of continuously writing uh, recent history. Um, but um, if I were to write a postscript, Bolivia 2021, of course, I would have to make reference to the, uh, the year of the, what I refer to as the coup regime that's under debate, but I saw it as a coup. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, COVID, of course, on top of, I uh, actually just wrote a short piece for current history called uh, Between the Coup and COVID or something. Um, and uh, it would have probably said something to the effect of Bolivia is now reaching the last years of the age of gas and aspires to enter into a new era of extractive dependency on lithium. That age is not here yet, but it may come soon. And um, the challenges that I talk about in the book, what I've been calling paradoxes during this conversation, remain is um, to what extent will social movements be able to reconfigure themselves now that Evo Morales is, is not the president. Uh, the MAS does not have the kind of hegemony that it had before. Uh, the limits of a gas-dependent economy are becoming clear. There are new generations of uh, Bolivians who weren't even alive when Evo was, came to power. And there are certainly new new lines of struggle that don't fit into what I was, you know, trying to make visible in the book. And I hinted this in the last chapter, you know, the kind of old narrative of revolutionary, generally masculine revolutionary vanguardist struggle uh, versus reactionary uh, capitalist elites. The reactionary capitalist elites are still there, but this may be the, the historical moment in which there needs to be a new kind of politics, a new thinking about politics that doesn't replicate or mirror that kind of uh, uh, masculinist, masculinist logic of uh, a struggle for power. And we see that, for example, in uh, movements around gender and sexuality, uh, movements around the environment, um, uh, younger anarchist-inspired uh, uh, thinking, especially in the cities. Um, so that's what I would probably, I would probably say much what I did at the end of the, the, the book itself is that uh, it remains to be seen how, how a new, new kinds of politics might be imagined that can break free from 
these older forms that have some liberatory potential, but are also sort of plagued with these traps and paradoxes that, that one gets into. So that's certainly what I'm hoping for. And uh, if I'm around long enough to write another book, that might be what it's about, is uh, the new kind of politics. Wonderful. Well, we'll be looking forward to that book. Uh, and thank you very much, Professor Gustafson, for joining us and your insights. Oh, thank you. Thank you for great questions and thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'm your host, Aliza Rujan. This discussion of Bolivia and the Age of Gas, published by Duke University Press in 2020, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.